Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 104 of the F1 Show. For coverage of the final round of the 2011 Championship, the Brazilian Grand Prix in Sao Paulo, I'm Robin Warner. And I am Jim Lau. And yes, this we have finally come to the end of the 2011 Formula One season uh, in terms of races, but not necessarily in terms of podcasts. I know a lot of people were sort of ruining the end of the season and thinking, oh, I got no more F1 news in 111 days till the next race and yes, all that. Yes, yes. But don't worry. And if you, if you look at our track record, we've done uh, a number of off-season uh, podcasts and everything. So if we can say anything right off the bat, it would just be to, to sort of stay subscribed, stay tuned. And, uh, you know, some of the off-season ones are, are some, of the, some of the most fun shows because uh, it's a little bit different format. And uh, we can talk about everything that's going on in the off-season. But we have plenty to talk about going on mid-season um, as in news since the last race, a lot of which actually revolving around the United States. Yes. Uh, so as everyone who has anything to do with F1 is probably aware, there's been a lot of drama around the United States Grand Prix. Um, both there was the addition of the Grand Prix of America, I think it's called technically. Yes, in... it's the Grand Prix America in New Jersey, which it... we have discussed before, but it's still awesome. Yeah, so that, you know, which is possibly playing a role in the whole negotiations and the whole situation which going on in the previously announced United States Grand Prix uh, that was due to start next year in Texas. But and I, now... And I say due to start because yes. it sounded like everything was in place and everything was good, but now, and they started construction and all that, and, and obviously, you know, I went to the track and David Coulthard and Red Bull went to the track and they did some stuff and, you know, it's not complete, it's, this isn't, I think, to the, the level of... Uh, USF1 level of kind of vaporware, if you will, right? Um, or, or potentially just sort of you know fraud or whatever. But um, it, you know, so work has definitely been done. But um, apparently, the you know some con- some the the race promoter uh, contract has changed hands, and it's no longer Tavo Helmand who was involved in just sort of setting up the track and getting that construction going. But now it's in more of just a pr- promoting the first event. And we'll see a contract there that hasn't been signed, and it's 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 trouble. That's what's interesting because Tavo Helmand. Um, who was the founder of Full Throttle Productions, I believe. Mm -hmm. He was in charge of, so he claims, getting the event put together, making the agreement with Bernie, making the agreement with the local government in Texas, putting the right people in place to get the track put together. But he said in terms of financing the actual event, he never intended to have any part of that. It wasn't his job to finance the first event. Apparently there was a disagreement with that with the actual track builders and owners, which is now labeled COTA, Circuit of the Americas. Mm -hmm. And so they were in contention. Basically, the agreement that's been come to, that's been come to is that Tavo is more or less going to kind of be pushed aside in terms of some of his major roles in part of the event itself. And that now COTA kind of has full control over it. Right, but I'm not sure that that wasn't the plan all along because... And I'm not either because Tavo said he was never supposed to be a part of the money, but then he said that he was one of three kind of major groups involved and if he needs to be pushed out for the event to happen, he's willing to be pushed out. But if he wasn't supposed to be a part of the funding in the first place, then what is he being pushed out of? Yeah, I feel like his job was getting as far as, I think, essentially that he accomplished, which was getting the parties together to say, hey, we should have a race in Texas, and here's why it could work, and let's do the studies, and let's find the place and get the land, and here's who's going to build it, here's what the track will actually be. And then once that's underway, I I think, you know, my understanding of it is that that was always the plan, that that was sort of 
basically the end of his involvement. But then promoting a race and selling tickets and doing sponsorships and all that kind of stuff was between yeah the Circuit of the Americas organization and and there's you know another aspect of this is that there's uh, money coming in from the state of Texas as well uh, from some athletics or sort of major event funds that they've got and there's some confusion there because anytime you bring in uh, you know the government uh, you know government money then it's it's questions for voters and it's politicians and it's people elected to city councils and things like that who are you know, may have zero knowledge of this kind of negotiation, you know, of uh, negotiating with Formula One. And, and when you think about, you know, in the rest of the world, I think people generally sort of understand, uh, you know, how negotiations can go with Bernie Ecclestone or with FIA and with FOM and kind of how the money is supposed to work. And I think someone, you know, who's been elected to city council who may, you know, their previous job may have been as drain commissioner or something, you know, they may have very little highly, idea. Highly sought of, after job, of, drain commissioner. Of yeah. kind of how this, how this whole thing goes together. So, um, yeah, the the bottom line right now, um, as as of Sunday right now, after, just after the Brazilian Grand Prix, is that um, the uh, you know as Bernie Ecclestone said this morning, you know they're they're short a pen and and money yes. as in signing the contract and coming up with the money, and it I think the most likely outcome right now is that the 2012 race is postponed to 2013. Uh, that they said they might be able to get this all sorted out and get the money in place and the track finished and blah 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 by by the 2013 date. Um, but now, uh, or in the last week, we've also heard that, um, you know, parties interested are going to be able to come up with the money to actually have the race happen in 2012. I think that's right. maybe a little bit less likely. Um, what I, what we really hope doesn't happen is that sort of the, the negotiations go sour in such a way that, that everyone decides it's not worth it and they sort of bail on the whole track. And we talked about the New Jersey race a little bit, and I think some of the promoters were saying, oh, well, now we've got another race to compete with, so our ticket sales will be less, which I really don't think is the case. No, I, I don't think so. But there, there's definitely still plenty of arguing to happen because I, I also read an article recently. I don't know if there's been movement since, but uh, COTA said we now have the money to pay Bernie Ecclestone because that was a big part of it. You know, Formula One management collects a big you know, seven-figure, maybe eight-figure fee for the privilege of Formula One coming to your racetrack. And having a, an event called and, United States Grand Prix. I mean, F1 right. never loses in these deals. Right, no, ever. And they were six months late on the payment, and they kept delaying it, and they kept paying. So Circuit of America says, oh, we have the money now. We have proof that we have the money in place, but we don't like the contract, so we've written our own, and we're sending a signed version of that contract to you. So there is now a claim that the money is there, but there's a contract dispute. And I have not heard that been resolved one way or the other. So there's certainly plenty of ways for this to go sour on us again, because apparently, you know, uh, uh, you know, United States and Formula One are like, you know, the same polar ends of a magnet and they just cannot come together. Yeah, it's it's too bad. I mean, especially, uh, you know, we've, we've had some, some conversations about sort of, you know, the brand of F1 and I think, if anything, having the two races will just be that much more, you know, public awareness and excitement Absolutely. and interest in what's going on in F1. And they're two very different events. Very different locations, very different tracks themselves. I mean, New York having access to everywhere in the world, and, and it's a whole other sort of market in the U.S. I it's mean, kind it, of a center of the Americas in a way, you could yeah. say. But, I mean, I mean, it's funny when you think about it, because what is New York? 2,500 miles from Texas or something? I mean, 2,000 yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's an easy 2,000. Um, and when you think about how far away races in you know, Germany and England and, and Spain and the multiple races in Spain and, yeah. and Italy and Hungary and Turkey, like, you know, it's a very, very large distance. 
there's plenty of people in and the U.S. And your point being that that's all within 2,000 miles. Right. So, yeah. That there's so, you know, and, and when you think about even all these Asian races, you know, the 2,000 miles is, is a long way apart geographically. But then also, you know, there are plenty of people who have, you know, or live in the U.S. or have ways to get to the U.S. or have always wanted to come to New York or, or wanted to go to Texas or, or want to check that all out. You know, lots of South American drivers and, and, and all that. So anyway, there's, I think, a lot of reason for both. I think, if anything, they help each other. And uh, it would really be a shame for this whole thing to fall off the rails just oh, because of these I mean, disagreements. If, if we had to pick one, I would pick New Jersey as well. I mean, New York is the melting pot. I mean, first of all, it's the home of the United Nations. So it's quite literally <laughs> the location for uh, all, the, all the world to come together. But it's also in terms of just neighborhoods and ethnicities and backgrounds in New York City. I mean, it's just, you have everything. I mean, I, I don't know any other way to describe it. So it's a melting pot. It's obviously the biggest um, city in the United States. And it's a huge cultural center. You know, both Jim and I are very excited for it. The location, I didn't know such a cool location existed in New Jersey. So that's really cool that that location works out and it's all owned by one yeah, one I- group of people. So there's a lot of like... There's a lot of hope that the New Jersey thing might not actually get totally effed up. <laughs> There's hope yeah, for that. I mean, it is the most expensive street course to run. And you think about it compared to Monaco, that's, that is saying something. I think in terms of just the disruption to services and, and everything that's going on, um, you know, having, uh, having it right, right by New York. And I think, if anything, you know, thinking of people, um, you know, fans internationally. I mean, part of, it, part of what's fun about the, you know, F1 races that I've been to is that you're traveling to another place to do it. And, you know, you're talking about maybe going to Germany and going to the German Grand Prix or something Absolutely, like that. Yeah. And you think about how many people have wanted to go to New York from everywhere in the world. I mean, it's a, such a cool destination. I think probably more so than Austin, Texas. Um, although some, having, having another, um, you know, permanent road course facility, an, you know, an FIA sort of top class road course facility in Texas is interesting and exciting. I mean, that's another venue Absolutely. for races. We have MotoGP there. We're going to have V8 supercars and, you know, just hoping that that whole, um, you know, the racetrack and kind of the technology campus around it and all that, um, you know, that's something that you and I may, you know, be involved with in some way in the future with our various jobs and things like that. Where, Absolutely. You know, just having a, a top class racing facility um, in a very cool city like Austin, um, you know, it, is a good thing. So I think in that way, it's a little bit more exciting than uh, than New York. But Right. And, and Austin, and that's, you know, something I feel like I want to emphasize. And obviously, you can speak to this more personally than I can. But Austin is a very cool city. You know, it's it's the hometown of the University of Texas, which is a real big university in the States. And it's got a very large music culture and a very large arch culture. It's actually a very interesting town. It's not anything like one would, uh, you know, put the, you know, if you're going to put a Texas moniker on something, Austin is the antithesis of that almost. And, but it's a, but it's a very cool, excuse me, it's a very cool city. Yeah. And I, so it would be, we both really hope this Texas Grand you know the Grand Prix in Texas will still work out. I would still love to see it in 2012. But uh you know if if we had to pick between the two, uh, you know, the New Jersey event is more prominent. Yeah, and even I mean November 2012 is essentially 51 weeks from right now. I mean, it was just last week was a one year, it was basically the one year to the USGP. I put that on my calendar as kind of like a cool countdown like a, <laughs> a year from today we could be in Texas and all that. But uh yeah, so it's there is still ba- uh, almost a complete year to figure these things out um, and, you know, separate from any other kind of schedule changes and various things, like obviously we had the whole situation with Bahrain at the beginning of this year um, and, you know, uh, hopefully the Texas race isn't uh, under under any kind of question for, for reasons like Bahrain, but, uh, you know, just things can happen last minute, things can get moved around, um, there's no way, you know, it couldn't really be any later in the season than it already is, but, 
you know, there is plenty of time for this to happen. So even if it seems like it's going to be off for a little bit, it seems like, you know, they still have uh, quite a bit of time to work these things out, find money, make arrangements. And uh, I, I think we're both hopeful that it'll be back in 2012 or, be, you know, exist in the first place in 2012. Yeah. But failing that, at least if it's, ba- you know, back on the calendar for 2013, that that would be better than nothing. And that'll be the start of the twin turbo V6 era and all that. And uh, it could be very cool in its own way. Yeah. So what else happened? I'm not, you know, there's, I feel like a decent amount happened. I, I was reading a lot about, Barrichello and whether it was going to be his last race or not leading up to uh, this event in Brazil. But I don't know if that's necessarily news before the race so much as just big news in general. Well, um, the few things we did have a couple of driver announcements, um, most arguably most notably. I mean, you know, we mo- ah. most of the most of the drivers are staying the same. Of course, we've talked about that in yeah. the past, all the top teams. But of course, there's going to be, you know, the Caterham F1 team um, is going to be the same driver lineup, but they're saying now that they're going to still run the uh, green and yellow uh, paint scheme just to keep things slightly confusing. Uh, Good. So, so Good. there's that. That makes sense. Um, Caterham's colors. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Pedro De La Rosa has been appointed as, uh, as yes. lead driver HRT, which Two is cool. Two-year contract, I think it was. Yeah, and, you know, he's obviously older and, and a more technical driver uh, in, in terms of, you know, he's been in McLaren for a long time. He just that he's, means slow. He sat in for uh, Checo Perez when he was out, when he, when he, uh, after he crashed in Monaco. Yeah, after and, the Monaco and, accident. And so yep. in, in Canada. Um, but that, that could be cool because that's HRT um, being a Spanish team and Pedro De La Rosa being, um, you know, I guess the second best Spanish driver in this one. I mean, you know, it's, there's not <laughs> a lot. Or third. I mean, depends on exactly how you um, place uh, Jaime Aguasuari. And there's a rumor that Jaime actually might be joining him at HRT. Yeah, so that could be, we could have, you know, we've, we've had the English dream team at, uh, at McLaren Mercedes with, mm-hmm. with, you know, two champions, uh, you know, English champions, English car and all that. We've had the German situation with Mercedes and Michael and Nico. And then if we have the same kind of trifecta of Spaniards, uh, at HRT, that could be sort of a cool, you know, that could get some investment behind them and could be yes. a big deal in Spain. Uh, and, and anyway, so that that's happening. And as we mentioned, there are two Grand Prix in Spain as, these days. And you, maybe you were about to say it, you jog my memory, uh, Mr. Kubica made an announcement. Yeah, well, yeah, which was sort of like, we don't have, I'm not ready now, but I might be ready soon, but I might not be ready soon. I mean, it wasn't, there's no conclusion there. It Well, the, the, what I read was that he definitely was not going to be ready for winter testing for the 2012 season. Yeah, or I, th- I saw something. It was, it was he won't be ready for the start of 2012, and then a week later, a couple days later, Renault said, "Oh, that's rubbish." You know, he very, very well may be ready for the beginning of 2012. So that was part of this whole kind of back and forth. And I mean, from as little as we've heard and seen from Kubica, you know, with any kind of, you know, oh, he was out testing, even just you know driving some yeah, road car. He was in a go kart or, or something. Yeah, yeah. anything. Um, that, or even in the simulator, I'm not even sure. Yeah, at a, at a simulator or anything. That. I mean, it's one thing to recover, to be able to operate a normal life, and be able to like you know drive to the store and get groceries, and you know pick things up and go up and down stairs. And, I mean, whatever you know, just just you know recover from an accident like that. But it's a whole other level to recover to the level to be able to drive an F1 car at all, let alone drive competitively and you know really help push a team forward, which is kind of the whole point of his role at uh, at Lotus Renault. So, I mean, it seems crazy to me just as sort of thinking about how, you know, people's are, people are injured and, and how strong and how sharp someone needs to be to, you know, be at the top level of the sport. 
that he would be ready with as little as we've seen from him that he's, you know, if he's been in the simulator and done seat fittings and, you know, done any kind of work, even driving an older car or driving whatever sports car or something, uh, it really seems like they would have, they would have talked about that. And if he hasn't done any of that, I don't know who would think that he's going to be ready, uh, for, you know, in, in a few months time to be able to be in, you know, as good a shape as anyone else in the paddock and be able to actually do anything worthwhile in an F1 car. So, I, it's it's unfortunate to say that, of course. I mean, we we really wish him well, and I really hope he recovers. But I hope he doesn't happen is that he, you know, re-injures himself and trying to they try to accelerate the schedule too much. Sure, I mean, sure. Just, it's like let the guy get better, and then I know they've got contracts to figure out, and they've got to figure out well if it's not going to be him or they got to hire somebody else. And you know they they have confirmed Vitaly Petrov. I mean, he's still in contract, but you know do they do they keep with Bruno Senna? Do they you know go another? Well, route? and Romain Grosjean is kind of high on their list, and you know. I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility. Rubens Barrichello could fit there if it was a half season thing. There's also, um, you know, there's also rumors going on that maybe the nature of the injury and everything else that Kubica might not want to go back to Renault. That he might instead be an eyeing, eyeing a possible leap to Ferrari in 2013. And so, Cause tech- if he, yeah, if he could be a test driver and do a couple little things here in, right. in, in Ferrari, of course, having their own track at Mugello and being able to just, you know send them out in old cars and do different laps and demos and all kinds of stuff. I mean, yeah, that's a, would be a very good training ground for that kind of thing. And technically, he is under contract with Renault until uh, the December 31st of 2011. So there's room for him to make decisions um, based on, you know, based on his injury and stuff to jump ship to Ferrari, which in a way would be a shame because Renault certainly seemed to be completely supportive of Kubica in the sense that not only want to hire you as a driver, but really build a team around you. And so that's a really hard thing to come by as a driver for a team to fully support you like that. But at the same time, you know, the Renault, which is now going to be Lotus, is not the same as a Ferrari. You know what I mean? So it's tough. It's very, very tough. Yeah. And so as it stands now, um, Williams has not confirmed drivers. STR has not confirmed drivers. Um, Marussia, Marussia, formerly Virgin, but I forgot they changed the name. <laughs> Is it just Marussia? Um, has confirmed Timo Glock, but not a second driver. Um, and like we mentioned... Force India. Um, yeah, Sahara Force India, if you will. And of course, there's been sort of trouble in uh, Vijay Malia's empire of, uh, with, with his airlines you know, being late on bills and various things. So it's possible that... Um, that team becomes more Sahara and less Force India. Yes. Uh, the way these things go, you know, we don't know exactly how involved Vijay Malia will be and, and how, how his money will be next year. Um, but they haven't confirmed any any drivers yet. And there's so still a couple of these places switching around. Also, the, the second HRT seat behind Pedro de la Rosa, as you mentioned, could be another Spaniard or uh, could be someone else. So, um, yeah, you know, all the all the top teams are 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 sorted, but there are still these areas where these things can move around. So. Uh, you know, it'll be good to see how that all comes through. And I guess we should be hearing from Sahara Force India pretty soon. They said, you know, it would be in the next few weeks, and that was a couple of weeks ago, so not waiting till winter testing. But we should hear if Sotil or Duresta and Hulkenberg and kind of who gets what seats there. And yeah, and that's, I, that's going to be a tough decision, too, because, you know, uh, now we're starting to get ahead of ourselves a little bit here. But Sutil has shown very, very well in the second half of the season. Mm-hmm. Very well. Very well. Paul Duresta's kind of fallen, fallen back a little bit. Sutil has certainly been the stronger driver. I'm pretty sure that Sutil ended up beating um, beating uh, Duresta in the championship here. I'm going to look that up. Speaking so, of getting ahead of ourselves, though. Yeah. Right. So I, I think, I, I mean, that's the, the, so the silly season uh, hasn't really been silly this year. We didn't have these sort of, you know, driver swaps with three races to go or anything like that. It's pretty much just been 
uh, you know, carrying on as usual. Yeah, the last thing we got was Heidfeld getting axed for Senna. Yeah, and that was several races ago. That was and, for Spa. And that seems that seems like so long ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of long ago with everything. Yeah, so, uh, and, and as, as we mentioned, it's 111 days until we're back on track in, uh, in Melbourne which, next which year. Which sounds like a lot, but the fact of the matter is we're talking about the last race in Formula 1 after Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. the holiday in the U.S. here. And the first race is mid-March, right? I mean, yeah. it's 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 pretty darn short season, actually. Yeah, off season. So uh, I mean, it's a long time. But actually, you know, Jim and I have all these things at least uh, that we want to see if we can try to do with the show. And off season is usually our time to kind of uh, play with it a little bit. And it's like, man, we don't actually have that much time. <laughs> yeah, we don't. It's it's sort of uh, like the same thing with with like NASCAR with the, the kind of calendars they run that they I think you know that their you know Sprint Cup just ended last week. Yeah, thirty six weeks a year, I'm pretty sure. And and then you know they've got like this few weeks you know basically December and then they're back into testing again and then back racing in March again or February. Yeah, it's like it's crazy. So Tony uh, Stewart, by the way, won the championship. Again. It's his third. No, no, that's his third championship for the first time in several years. Tony Stewart... Um, first as a team owner. First as a team owner. Tony Stewart, I think, if I remember this right, Tony Stewart was the last one to win the championship before Jimmy Johnson won it five times in a row, which was crazy. I mean, this is, you know, exactly what Schumacher did. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Jimmy Johnson had this huge, massive run of cup, five straight next to uh, Sprint Cup championships. I mean, it's totally unheard of. So Tony Stewart finally broke that and won his third championship title. Well, there you go. There you go. Um, one other thing as far as news before the show, um, or before the race, and then we'll move on, is um, the talks of a McLaren-Honda pair up. Yes, yes. Um, that so was I, exciting. I had it in my mind, because for a while it was that the new engine regs were going to come in in 2013, but I forgot that got moved back to 2014 as part of the negotiation. Correct. And when it became twin-turbo V6s and not four-cylinders. Right. So I need to recalibrate my when-the-new-engines-come-in-ometer, because uh, it's not 2013, it's 2014, um, which... So, uh, McLaren's engine deal with Mercedes ends at the end of 2013, conveniently, or whatever, yes. right before the, you know, very new and different engine technology comes into play. And, you know, there was talks for, of, of uh, you know, Honda trying to sort of ease their way back into the sport. Obviously, they, they left running their own team and figured that wasn't the way to do it. But now that, um, you know, it's no longer about, all about qualifying sessions that are just, you know, burning rich and running fuel out of the car and, and those kind of things that is sort of an eye towards smaller packaging and efficiency and those kind of things that that, that may be interesting. And engine development is going to play a bigger role again. Yeah. It's not that it never played a small role, but it, it, you know, the engine freeze that's happened, they've had a lot tighter control on it. You know, that having brand new engines to come in and play with and, and, and improve on certainly has to be more enticing for an engine manufacturer than the current rules. Yes. So, um, you know, could we be back to the classic pair up of McLaren Honda? You know, at the same time we'd have Williams Renault, we'd have sort of, you know, back to these yeah, classic yeah. names that, uh, and it could be cool. Um, I think more recently I did see an article saying McLaren uh, saying, oh no, you know, that, that wasn't true at all. And we're, you know, we're still looking at options, but we have no connection with Honda or whatever. So that may well, not it's like 24, actually... I mean, 24 months out, it could be anything still. Yeah. It, it could be, and uh, but it's you know it's, it's sort of cool to see how how this is happening. You know, there's still that the pure engine company and um, you know various various other companies sort of coming into it. But I think yeah, having having that whole twin turbo V6 situation, um, I think it'd be really cool if Ford got back involved with it because that ties in so well with their whole EcoBoost. Yeah, like, absolutely. You know, small engines, small displacement, but it's really fast. And if they could have that halo of F1 cars and then to be able to sell 
you know, F-150s, not the Ferraris now, mind you, but the, but the pickup trucks, um, <laughs> then, uh, you know, saying, because they sell twin turbo V6 trucks right now, and they're actually really good for fuel economy and performance. So well, that, that, that's know, what the Taurus show is as yeah, well. Yep, and so tying that all together, and, the, you know, the Lincoln, uh, you know. MK, all, MKS, all those, yes. All those, yep. I mean, yeah, so they're, they're all about and that. And the Ford Flex. <laughs> we can lame them all. <laughs> let's, let's lame them all. So, yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I would love to see Ford back. Not sure that's going to happen. But it would be very, very cool to see Honda back. And I joked on the Facebook page that perhaps, uh, if that were the case, McLaren should hire Bruno Senna. And, and then you uh, get Marlboro back involved. Right. Well, and also, you know, uh, Alan, Alan Prost has a couple of kids. And Nikola is not, he's not, the research I found is doesn't show him as a race car driver by profession, but a, a investment banker or something like that. But he definitely also... I saw some little video on him once, and he's, he races in prototype series. Maybe it's part time, but so could we have? We could have a Prost um, Senna McLaren a, a Honda. Prost Senna McLaren Honda. We could get Ron Dennis to get some uh, some hair dye or something. Get, get some the, plugs. Get the brown hair back. <laughs> and uh, wow, that that could really come together. Then. That's what I'm saying. Of course, Marlboro, you can't do tobacco, so they have to be clever on that. But uh, yeah, if they could make that work, that that would be something. And uh, all of us that know the old stuff would be excited and the youngsters wouldn't know why <laughs> anyway the race practice let's do it it was awesome i didn't watch it you didn't see no, it no i did watch it, but i don't remember anything exciting happening no nothing was too exciting other than who was quickest and everything else I, you know there was hope once again which how meaningful was it nah. lewis hamilton was the fastest in practice too and uh, Mark Weber was the fastest in practice one with Jensen Button being uh, second fastest, Lewis third. And then in practice three, Sebastian Vettel was fastest. And then, you know, quickly we move on to more typical results of what we see. And uh, so it actually played out in a very, very predictable fashion. There was a, there was a lot of concern about um, – it, it was very interesting was the track seemed to be super greasy for everybody. There was a lot of uh, rear end sliding around, stuff like that. So it was kind of fun to watch from just uh, watching the drivers struggle to get balance and grip standpoint, but nothing kind of amazing. I think Sebastian Buemi had a really crummy uh, beginning of the weekend. He didn't get many laps at all. He had a lot of, he, I think he had a hydraulic failure and stuff like that. And uh, but nothing super amazing happened in practice that I remember either. Yeah, I do, yeah, I remember that. Now just seeing everybody slide around and sort of getting loose in various ways, just. You know, everyone should know, and everyone does know Interlagos very well. Uh, you know, we've been here for years, and uh, the track hasn't changed dramatically in a long time. I think it will after this year. I think they're going to reprofile some of the last corners. Yeah, there was some, accidents something. Earlier, that, yeah, with the the uh, Brazilian uh, Brazilian stock cars. Stock cars. Yeah, yeah. Which I didn't know there were such a thing. But uh, so, you know, it's a little bit surprising to see everyone come here and, and be different. I mean, we are on different tires than we've been on, but it seems like by the end of the season now, we should know the tires pretty well because we've done. 19 races on them and uh and should know the track pretty well but i guess it's still just there's still that something different that getting the balance it's the temperatures it's the you know how much rain they had before you know washing off rubber and getting oil up and all those kind of things but uh yeah it was um sort of sort of impressive i guess how how hard you know serious teams had it uh getting their you know getting their times together but uh yeah through qualifying though it uh there was always that thread of rain um and it never came together so there was sort of you know everyone oh let's get out let's get laps in early you know we don't because because wet qualifying can really screw stuff up and uh, it never never came to pass so qualifying ended up being actually a pretty straightforward affair i would say um with uh you know 
Pastor Maldonado being um, odd man out in Q1, um, which is, you know, too bad for the Williams-Cosworth, but good that Ruben Barrichello at least got through to Q2 because it'd be a shame for he was He for was him to be quite quick in, and, in qualifying this weekend. And he said his time, he said a 113.8 in Q2, um, which actually was was good enough for 12th spot, so it was only you know a second second from the top in uh, in Q2. Um, he said that felt like Q1 for, for the, or P1 for this car. He's yeah. like that was the fastest that this car could go at this track, and it was a really good lap. And that's just as much as he could possibly get out of it. And that is you know it's a shame for the you know second winningest constructor ever in F1 to be excited about a 12th place qualifying, but that is the state of things, and that's as fast as he could go. And uh, you know he he made that happen. So. Um, it was good for him there, but uh, yeah. So just just on the bubble and just just out of uh, Q3 was, um, you know, Paul DeResta didn't quite make it through. He was 11th, and Rubens, as we mentioned, in 12th. Yep. Both STRs were out, and then, uh, you know, uh, Vitaly Petrov, and then both Sabers, yeah. 16th and 17th. Kobayashi just ahead of Perez. So yeah, uh, and on to Q3. Uh, pretty interesting. Uh, it was a little bit of a shame. Because, especially in practice, that was actually one thing that was notable. Michael Schumacher was quite quick mm. in practice. And then in qualifying, it seemed to kind of dial back a little bit. And same thing with Nico Rosberg. His Q2 time was nearly just about half a second quicker yeah, it was. than his Q3 time. So uh, both Mercedes, when it really counted, actually couldn't quite deliver. But uh, obviously, the, the, the big story here... Uh, for some at least, is Sebastian Vettel getting his 15th pole of the season, breaking the single-season pole position record uh, of all time, which was Nigel Mansell's 14 poles in 1992. Um, both Jim and I kind of put a lot more weight in the ratio of poles to races, yes. which Vettel did not touch. Um, he was somewhere in the 70% range, and Mansell was in the 80s. But either way, I mean, it is still something that's been talked about all season. Um, on its own, 15 poles in a season of any number of races is a huge, huge achievement. You know, 15 poles in NASCAR's uh, Sprint Cup's 36 races is still a huge, remarkable feat. So it's it's an incredible number, and Vettel absolutely deserves um, praise for it. And he was also, in doing that time, was the only one to break the minute 12 mark. He was, uh, you know, 1 minute 11.9 in that car. It was a ridiculous lap. Yeah, it was very cool to see that. And this time, um, it was also nice to see that his teammate was right behind him. So it was Sebastian Vettel, P1, with the only guy in the one in the uh, yeah one elevens, um, and then uh, yeah, right behind him, Mark Webber, uh, which is always which is good to see because it's sometimes disappointing when you see Vettel just putting this ridiculous good lap and Mark Webber's like fifth or sixth, and it's kind of like what happened there. So Mark Webber did a great job this weekend, and uh, it was only at the tenth behind or less than uh, yeah, I guess right about a tenth. Yeah. Um, behind him in uh you know in, in second spot and then behind him the mclarens with button just ahead of hamilton and uh, 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 uh just ahead that's a solid two tenths sir okay that's only well because hamilton once he saw that button had that time up he just backed out of his lap so he might have been able to get a little bit closer but you know meh excuses in. i'm hearing whatever button was, button was faster <laughs> thank <enough>. you <laughs> and yeah. then it was alonzo in fifth nico rosberg in sixth and then Massa all the way down to seventh, not super great. Adrian Sutil in eighth spot. And again, this is kind of leading more towards what I was talking about earlier about how in the second half of the season, Sutil has really been switched on. And, um, you know, this eighth uh, place qualifying position, I think, is an excellent example of it. 
and then uh, and then yeah, Senna in ninth. Bruno did make it through to Q3, and then Schumacher in tenth, uh, who did not set a time in Q3. Yeah, and Senna was actually another one that I was a little bit disappointed by because if you look at his Q2 time, he was a 13-3 in Q2, which um, would have been the same spot. I mean, there was no it would have been the same spot, but if he could have done just a little bit better, he could have gotten he could have snagged eighth place, and you know you know been in some pretty pretty special company there, but he alas he couldn't quite hold it together, and then. Schumacher in tenth didn't even bother. I I saw him. He pulled out of the pits and he did go out and run the car, but he didn't. He didn't ever put in an official time. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to the race. And we had another thrilling start with Sebastian Vettel leading from pole position, moving forward, dominating enough that he never had to give up the race lead, and just went on to sail to clean Vic. No, wait, not true. That sir. did not happen. This race. This... The most exciting thing about it was that. Even before all the calamitous issues that he had and before he was like Senna and all this kind of nonsense, he did not pull away from Weber or even Alonso, for that matter, at the beginning. He, he was being kept honest by his teammate, which was awesome to see. Right. Um, and then it wasn't too long into the race. Uh, first of all, the first round of pit stops happened a little bit earlier than I think most people expected. So it wasn't usually the first, you know, quite as long of a distance where he could get that kind of a gap. But like you say, he was being kept honest. He he had a couple second lead, but it was not any of this Vettel sailing off into the yeah, sunset. No never second lap again. type stuff. Um, yeah. And, and then uh, it was pretty early on. Um, where Red Bull announced to Sebastian, uh, hey, we've got a problem with second gear. You've got a short shift second gear. Or they didn't say specifically what the problem was, but the but the, the their fix was short shift on second gear, um, and and you know, but otherwise keep keep going doing your thing, um, which you know we we talked about and we actually live tweeted during this race as well. Um, you know, of all the gears to lose, that's not arguably that bad because there's maybe once or twice on the track that you'd get into second, but most right. of it, you know, compared to losing third or fourth or fifth or one that's right in the middle there, um, that they really could mess you up a bit more. It's like okay, you can pretty pretty well work around that. It'll slow you down a little bit in the lowest hairpins, but for even the the tiniest little bit. I mean, you could pretty easily not even go to second and be mostly okay here. Yeah, stay in third and, and, and do okay. Um, so maybe that was part of it. It was having to short shift. And it, it, from the onboard shots, it didn't seem like he was doing it that much, uh, as in heeding that advice very much. And actually, we, you know, they, they sort of show the radio broadcast. And usually those are a little bit delayed, right? Maybe a lap delayed or something like that. But as they're saying, Vettel, you need to short shift, and, and you know they've got the shift indicator across. It's not on the wheel, I think, on the on the Red Bulls, but it's across sort of the top of the of the you know the dash of the car, if you can call it that. Um, and it's got I think like greens, reds, and and purple or something. It's sort of got three sets of LEDs and like shift on the reds, meaning like right when it's sort of at two out of three segments, not three out of three. And right as they're announcing that, I see him in second gear going up to the full top of that. Uh, rev limiter and you know at and you know maxing out the revs in second gear so it's like uh, you know maybe he knows something that i don't about how that thing is calibrated or what right, he's doing right. in the middle of the corner or whatever but um it didn't seem like vettel was um, you know from the onboards it wasn't obvious that he was driving terribly differently but certainly his pace wasn't quite there um and as the as the situation progresses they okay actually we need you to short shift second and third gear and then a few laps after that, it was like, okay, we need you to short shift every gear and every corner. You need to take this serious. This is a serious problem. And at that point is when he got into real trouble maintaining the lead. Yes. And uh, so as we mentioned, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Weber was right behind him. Weber was the guy keeping him honest. And thankfully, Weber got a pretty good start and, uh, and kind of almost Excellent lost the place, start by Weber's but, standards. But didn't quite, yeah. And uh, was able to maintain second place. So conveniently or whatever it's it's mark weber in second place that's the guy who benefits from vettel's lack of pace and um 
and, and you know, and Weber got around Vettel and was able to stay in front of him there. So, um, which was actually really good for Vettel as well, if you think about it, because if it were Hamilton in second place or, or Button in second place, then it, there would have been a lot more incentives to, well, let's risk the transmission so we don't lose, lose these places. But since it's a teammate, it's like, well, just slow down. You've got a gap to Alonso, which they did at the time, pretty healthy gap. Slow down, accept that, and let Weber buy. It's not the end of the world. Yeah, I mean, even so, it's not, I mean, having already tied up the constructors and drivers' championships and all that, there's not as much of a, you know, we really need to fight for this position for it to matter. But, yeah, the fact that it's his teammate um, and the fact that this would be Mark Weber's first win of the year if he gets around and, and stays there and that then he has Vettel as sort of slightly injured wingman to sort of, you know, hang out behind Weber, it ultimately is is potentially the best thing that Red Bull could do and is to have their drivers in that order. Absolutely, and it helped ensure Weber to get third place in the Drivers' Championship as opposed to fourth. Which is why several people up and down the Twitter lane, as it were, uh, were saying, oh, how convenient is that? And that's team orders in such a blatant way, and oh, you're not allowed to have team orders, and blah, blah, blah. Blatant? But Did people say blatant? Somebody, uh, I, there, were, there were, I think, stronger words than blatant even, but it's Twitter, you know, it's these kids, they don't know uh, what they're saying. Yeah, kids, Twitter. But, um... I mean, first of all, you're allowed to do team orders now, as I understand it. Yes. Unless, I, unless they nope, went back on that. You are definitely allowed. If, if Christian Horner wanted to get on the radio and say, hey, Vettel, slow down and let Mark Weber buy, he could do that, right. and he wouldn't get any fines or penalties or anything. Absolutely. And people, fans might be upset about it or might not or whatever. That's their opinions, but that there's no actual rule against team orders these days um, or as of this year. Um, so first of all, they wouldn't have had to sort of shroud it in – Gearbox mystery. And this would be awfully elaborate. I mean, this wasn't even a, like, this wasn't even, oh, I missed a couple of gears on this lap. This was several laps worth of this is slowly and progressively getting worse. Yeah, and even after Vettel was behind Weber, um, near the end of the race, you know, about two-thirds of the way through the race, he did have a pretty pretty wild off and on, like whether he was just downshifting weird and uh, it caught him out a little bit or whatever, you know, lack of concentration or whatever it may have been, but a sort of uncharacteristically, uh, you know, for Vettel situation where he just didn't, you know, way off the track and back on. He didn't lose a position. It wasn't enough. He still had enough of a gap over, over Button at that point. But, um, you know, so it does seem like there was something wrong with the car. I don't, I don't personally think that this was an elaborate uh, Red Bull plot. No, it plot. wasn't. There it are, wasn't. I think, people on the Internet that do think that that was the deal. Um, but, uh, you know, that's... Again, I think if I were gonna if I were gonna slow down one of the guys, I would just sit Weber and have one of the tire guys fumble for an extra six seconds in oh, the pits. I mean, yeah, there's, there's everyone stopped. You're not on track. You're not running off. And then, oh look, it took an extra couple seconds, and now he's back. Oh look, now he's back. There, there's it's a whatever. myriad of, of simpler ways to do that. And besides, the, you know, they still didn't have complete control over it. You know, because at the time when the pass was made, Alonso was still ahead of Button, which means Alonso would have had the points to cover Weber still. So it it, it it doesn't add up in my mind, especially as to when, when the pass was completed and everything else. They still were kind of at the mercy of Alonso's performance as well. So uh, certainly you want to do everything you can to maximize, but... Yeah, I guess if anything, having this situation, they, they played it to the best of their advantage. Um, you know, they sort of made the best out of the situation they had, which is okay, our number one guy doesn't win. But, you know, arguably what Red Bull probably wanted to give... Uh, Weber uh, one win. It looks probably a little bit uh, a little bit lame on their part if if it's you know Vettel winning you know as many times as he did and, and zero for Mark Weber. So at least it's it's good for Mark. Um, it'll probably make him feel a little bit better about his, his contracts it's, it's and whatever. It's good for Mark, but I think it's I, I I really want to emphasize that I personally think it's totally silly to think that Red Bull contrived this in any way, shape, or form. I to me that's just stupid. I think 
a lot of obviously a lot of drivers had transmission issues and so I, I think it was they legitimately had a transmission issue and they got lucky they were able to nurse at home. And I, I don't think it's anything more than that. And I think the people that are saying that it's conspiracy theory and team orders and all that kind of stuff are just hunting for something and just looking for clues wherever they can find them. Fair enough. I mean, that's my take on it. Yeah, well, maybe Vettel's transmission was an inside job. I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of transmission problems... Um, we had several in several different teams. Um, so do you suppose there's something special about Interlagos that is harder on a transmission or because we're at the end of the season and everyone's kind of on the ragged end of reliability on these gearboxes that have to last for 25 races or whatever it is now um, to uh, that everyone's just on the last bits of them and they're just pushing really hard because they, they know they're not going to need them next week. I certainly, or, or what? I certainly don't have any memory of a history of transmissions failing at Interlagos. I think it is a smaller track. It does have some tighter sections, so they might shift more here than they would in some other tracks, possibly. But they've got to, I mean, Singapore and stuff, they've got to do a lot of shifting. Oh, yeah, there. and I Valencia mean, and places like that. But it definitely is the end of the season, and... You know, you can only have so many transmissions before you get penalized, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it is possible that not maybe a few guys weren't on transmission they would have ideally had run. They're all bringing out the bottom of the barrel in terms right. of transmission. Exactly. Just to so, not take a penalty. Exactly. So in terms of anything special about Interlagos that would cause transmission failure, I certainly don't have any memory of that or any knowledge to say that. But it definitely did seem to be an issue, I think. Um, certainly Vettel's uh, was the earliest to start being talked about, but uh, other teams definitely had problems and other drivers were asked to be careful with their transmissions. Uh, certainly the most prominent among them was Lewis Hamilton. Whom... Yes, he started fourth yes. just behind Vettel, Weber, and Button. Um, and in basically Because he was turn, slower than Button. Turn, because he was slightly slower than Button. But yeah, whatever. Massively, uh, two tenths. Um, who is quickly passed by Fernando Alonso and sort of the first turn schmazzle and just kind of yes. track position the way they kind of unfolded. Um, you know, Alonso got around him there and uh, Hamilton was trying to, you know, looking to fight his way back, but uh, didn't, uh, wasn't, didn't actually get a back, back around him except I think on pit stops when, uh, when, uh, no, actually he didn't. Um, and then, uh, yeah, with uh, 45 laps into the race or so, um, just ended up with a box of neutrals. Uh, you know, yeah, he was, absolutely. Uh, he was actually... Interestingly enough, a few laps prior to that, he was racing against Massa. Yeah. The way it worked out, he had caught Massa. And it was so clear and obvious that Hamilton was being extra cautious. And this is the first time yeah, I've actually he was seen being, him. Yeah, he was clearly faster. He was being held up by Massa. And he was looking, but not not yeah. taking and not hitting and not, right. not forcing it, I guess. And I have to say, Massa, in my mind, was still being definitely on the aggressive side, still closing the door in a couple places like, oh, hey. And, and, there, I, and there were some creative interpretations of one move and what's returning to the race. Definitely, there was definitely, a little bit of that. Nothing, nothing blatant, I would say, but some, I would, you know. So to compensate for this, they, you know, McLaren said, okay, well, well, we'll take a pit stop now. We'll just get away from Massa and maybe try to pass him in the pits. Didn't work out. A few laps later, Massa pitted, and uh, Hamilton found himself in the exact same place he was before, just behind Massa and faster. This time round, though, it seemed pretty quickly that not only did Hamilton not want to get in an incident with Massa, neither did Hamilton's transmission, and he said, you know what? This isn't worth it. Yeah, it was right um, at the it, – it was, it was, he was just behind Massa. He was actually sort of coming to make a pass, and what was interesting to me, and I don't know if it was rated or not yet, but uh, – 
was it was seemed like right as Hamilton hit Kurz um, was when the transmission went out. So it might have been some kind of Kurz, you know, drive shaft into you know the electric drive shaft into the transmission or something that you know he wouldn't have used on the way out Quite of the possibly. pits and all that. Quite possibly. Where um, that that was at least part of the failure mode. But uh, yeah, he goes. He sort of goes to. to pull out and get around Massa, hits the curves, all of a sudden it's run, 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 and the car is just slowing down, and right. he's just got nothing he can just do. coasting. So, uh, yeah, that, and that ended his race. I mean, he could not, you know, couldn't get the car back around to the pits because they couldn't do anything about it anyway. Which and, is uh, terribly, was, yeah, sorry, terribly sad for Hamilton, but excellent news for some of us for some other reasons. Um, and uh, we also had Timo Glock with the classic failure of, his, uh, of the pit stops to not properly attach all the wheels. And I do believe that was his first pit stop, exiting out of his first pit stop. It might have been his second. He no, was, it looks like the first round of pits. It was like lap 21. It was lap 21. So, uh, so yeah, that probably would have been his first pits. And, uh, yeah, so he started dead last and moved his way up um, from, from a couple of reasons. But then, yeah, the first pits, they, they release him. The left rear wheel comes off of his car. And uh, normally it looked like, or for a minute there, it looked like it was just going to kind of sort of just quietly bounce along the car and, and, and you know, settle down but then it kind of bounced over the top of his car in kind of an awkward way and no one was injured it wasn't bouncing down the pit lane through you know crowds of people or anything but um obviously that's an unsafe release so that's something that's been penalized in the past and uh yeah so he he stopped i think in like you know sector one somewhere and uh, that was his day day done which is i mean such a disappointment for the season finale and everything to sort of just kind of go out with a whimper like that it's like oh well wheel didn't get screwed on so Whatever. Well, um, but he is the one with the contract for next year, so I suppose that by far is the most important thing. Much. And then the, the last thing about Hamilton's race, real quick. I mean, there's been obviously, he, you know, he was came into this weekend on a high from his victory last last race out in Abu Dhabi, but has had such this up and down kind of thing, and, and you know, and tends to just get really hard on himself and really down about all these, you know, oh, this was really stupid, or whether it was him and Massa, or whether whatever the situation was, you know, it's it's easy for that all to go wrong. So if anything. Um, it really doesn't seem like this was Hamilton's fault in any way. So if, if he can take any solace from, you know, having this DNF, at least it's not that he made some stupid error. This wasn't him cutting across on Massa and spinning right. them both out. This wasn't, it was like, all right, you know what, dude, the car failed. The transmission went out. Lots of people are having transmission problems. It's, you know, it's just, it's, it sucks, but it's not your fault. It's nothing to beat yourself up about because it, it's unfortunate to have something like this where this is the last result for the next three months you know this is the last yeah. the last thing sort of the last thing sticking in your mind and how much cooler would that be if it were that victory to think you know the last time i was racing i won rather than the last time i was racing i you know crashed out in some stupid way yeah that you're beating yourself up over all across the off season yeah absolutely agree with that and uh, uh just to pastor maldonado also had some issues and liuzzi had alternator failure um, you know who else had some issues, some transmission issues, was actually um, the Lotus Renaults, the black and gold Renaults, um, and Bruno Senna specifically. Uh, but that was – so that was when I think they had him short shift a couple of gears or whatever. That wasn't the most dramatic of Bruno Senna's issues, though. It was, Absolutely not. It was actually not. right about 10 laps into the race where um, Bruno Senna and Michael Schumacher came together, uh, coming up basically the front straight into turn one. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was pretty early on during the race, pretty much the first uh, racing incident um, where – Depending on your point of view, uh, you know, Schumacher turned into Senna or Senna, you know, came out into Schumacher or whatever. But the point is the car, they touched once um, and then and, and it didn't look like a whole lot of damage. Nobody was spinning or anything because they were basically on the straight. But it was sort of how are they going to set up for turn one? 
And then we saw Bruno with his hand off the wheel, gesturing to to Schumacher. Uh-huh. Um, and then they came together again. Um, so, and then that was enough to uh, cut Schumacher's left rear tire, which then he had a really slow in lap, just getting back around the track and getting out of people's way, put him in dead last place because the cars were still pretty well bunched up there. Right. And he had to do a pit stop and, and work his way back up to the field, which which he did just a little bit. So it was a pretty disappointing final run for Schumacher, but. Um, Stewards looked into it. They decided it was Bruno Senna's fault, and uh, and Senna got a drive through, which he served. Um, and, and so Senna, who had started ninth, as we mentioned, um, you know, ended up finishing how what twentieth or something. I mean, it was it was bad. It's uh, where is it? Eighteenth. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, he's Brazilian, and it's Senna, and it's you know the whole deal. But um, you know, the immediate reaction that I saw online. Uh, watching the Twitter streams and stuff live was was it was pretty well Schumacher's fault, and I was sort of in agreement with that. Looking at kind of not only where are the cars and where are they going, but who has you know who who has the opportunity to run wide, and it's like Schumacher had lots more road to his right um, that where he could have you know he didn't have to turn into uh, to uh, to Senna at that point. Um, some people thought maybe that uh, Schumacher saw it and thought it was Vitaly Petrov and decided he just needed to clobber him just because it's Petrov, um, but he was incorrect and it was actually Senna. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just just looking at it, um, first of all, it's whose fault is it or whatever, or is it just a racing incident where you, each of them could have acted differently? But secondly, is is just should there be a penalty kind of almost every time that these two, you know, that any two cars touch each other? Yeah. Well, so it's interesting because from the brief little bits of the accident I saw – I thought it was fairly legit to blame Senna myself. I thought that Schumacher was clearly in front and Senna was trying to re-overtake very optimistically. So so you're thinking now is this the first little bump or like into the corner their second coming together that actually had the... Uh, the first the, little bump. Okay. Which, you know, that wasn't the cause of the tire puncture, right. but it was the initiator of, of the whole incident in my mind. But to me, more than anything, and I, this gets back to your question is... Was there really any penalty here, or were they just racing each other? It's interesting. I pulled up a Autosport article where Schumacher blames Senna's inexperience for the accident. So uh, it says here, Schumacher overtook Senna, uh, Senna's Renault for ninth on start-finish late, but had his right rear tire punctured for the Brazilian's front wing, uh, so on and so forth. And uh, basically he was saying that uh, he thought that Senna just didn't fully understand uh, – Let's see here. Here's the quote. It's a bit of a shame today with the incident with Bruno, which was caused perhaps due to some lack of experience. But then those things happen. Otherwise, they think we had a nice race with some solid points. Uh, So Schumacher certainly uh, has no problem uh, blaming Senna for this incident. And uh, he's got the Stewarts on his side. And uh, frankly, I, I think you could have very easily called it a racing incident but I, I have no problem with Schumacher not being penalized for this myself. Yeah, well, the the thing that comes to mind is it seems like the first part of it, the first getting together, which was not catastrophic. You know, it wasn't. It was it was sort of wheel to wheel, but they were right next to each other. It wasn't the kind of interlocking wheels, which is so dangerous in open wheels. Uh, but uh, the first part of it sort of was like, okay, it was a racing incident. You know, I think Schumacher could have been a little farther outside, um, but you know, he was sort of coming in and sort of being aggressive and hoping that Senna would back off or whatever. But the second part of it 
which where Senna seemed more intent on gesturing to Schumacher than paying attention to his car and where it is and where is it, you know where Schumacher was and sort of driving safely through the corner that that part was sort of almost more worth penalizing. The first part is like, okay, these things happen. You know, these guys had a little bit different ideas of where they were going to be next to each other. I mean, we have seen lap after lap of really good action of cars driving inches from each other and just being able to, through their driving abilities, to sort of sense where the other guy's going to be and give mm-hmm. each other room and react really quickly. And it's always amazing and, and really cool when that happens, you know, with, with, with Vettel and Weber and Button and Hamilton and these guys. And um, so, you know, I, I, I can see where Schumacher comes from with that. And obviously Schumacher's as experienced as anyone, except Rubens, um, <laughs> as, as far as, you know, just anticipating where the drivers are going to do and knowing where his, the edges of his car are and what's safe and what's too hard and, you know, can probably decide what to do with, uh, in between there. And, um, so I, I can sort of understand that, and what, what sort of what seems most obnoxious and, and, and penalty worthy to me is uh, is Senna, you know, hand off the wheel just to gesture and try to make a point, and in the process, sort of driving into uh, in, into the tire and, and cutting that part down. So that that part of it seems uh, a little bit annoying. Um, real quickly, though, I just just uh, on my my Google feed, it says uh, Charles Peak is confirmed at uh, as oh, a racing driver. Oh, you pipped me! I was just <laughs> I have that put up myself. And what's funny is that I just then yeah, I'm get to the Wikipedia page that I was on and just refreshed it, and there he is, right in the list. I mean, these <laughs> Wikipedia folks, man, whoever whoever is doing these F1 pages is on top of it because now that's uh, that's confirmed. So it's Timo Glock as lead driver and Charles Peak uh, as the second driver, and he's uh, a Frenchman. Yes, a Frenchman that's been in GP2 for the last two years. Yeah, I have the I have the Autosport uh, article up myself. So the Virgin uh, lineup has now been confirmed. It's, it's the Marussia lineup. The, sorry, the Marussia lineup has now been confirmed uh, with Glock and Peak. So that uh, that will be quite interesting. I have I have Peak wasn't on my radar at all. So well, he spent the last two seasons competing in the Formula One Feeder Championship GP2, and in 2011 he ended the year in fourth place with two wins, three poles, and five podium finishes. Ah, well, I can sound really intelligent when I have a, an article in front of me <laughs> as well. So uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he goes better than Jerome Ambrosio did. Jerome Ambro- Ambrosio really did not impress. I mean, his fruit salad with marshmallow is truly fantastic and lovely tasting but not necessarily good prerequisite for formula one racing yeah i like the the last bit of the press release which is i would like to take this opportunity to thank jerome d'ambrosio yes, uh, yeah. for his hard work and important contribution to our team over the past 12 months or more and my favorite sentence he has an exciting future to look forward to so i'm sure we wish him every success not in Formula One, but it's, it's like, exciting that, in some way, shape, or form. That's like signing his yearbook at the end of the year, just like, have a great summer. Have a great summer. Keep on trucking. Yep. Ma Russia. All right, go go find something else, dude. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know that he was bad. We'd have to sort of look through the numbers uh, and see compared to his teammate and all that. It's just, well, he was not as good as Glock. It's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, with those, it's a little harder to evaluate those guys in the back Since part of the field. Since neither of them scored points. Because, yeah, no, no one had points, and the, there's so many more reliability issues on those, on those cars, and the, the pit crews aren't as up to it and everything. So there's a lot more reasons for, for poor results than, uh, than in the higher-level teams. But, well, uh, it's interesting you say that, actually, because in the official Formula 1 listing of the Drivers' Championship, Ambrosio is actually listed ahead of Glock. He's 24th to Glock's 25th. Right. So I think he may have actually done okay, but it's just, I guess you have to be amazing to be really well noticed. And I guess 
Timo Glock, being more, much more experienced, is probably able to help develop the car more. And if Charles Peak can have a little bit more pace and then help move things forward, I mean, it, you know, it's no no big surprise, and it probably has more to do with money than anything. Well, we anyway. actually have a little bit of data based on that, and uh, and that is our mid-season driver review where we uh, qual- did a quali- uh, qualification comparison. Mm-hmm. So this is actually the 11th round, um, and it was um, you know one of those landslides. Uh, so the first half of the season, at least, uh, Timo Glock had out-qualified uh, D'Ambrosio nine times to two. Right, so, which is the first half of his first Formula 1 season. I guess we'd have to look back at the numbers for the second half because I honestly don't remember how, you know, which guy was last and which guy was second to last. Right, <laughs> right. Ones. Um, I guess it's mostly the HRTs at the very, very back, but still. Um, yeah, that's – anyway, that happened, and uh, that's a more post-race news. This is, this is exciting when you do the race li- – or when we watch the race live and podcast just after rather than, you know, the race being over for six, six hours by now. and Yeah, um, or longer, all, yeah. All the news has already come out. Yeah, so uh, the uh, – I'm definitely – and that's something we, we probably should do uh, sometime in the off-season. I would love to do a – you know, we did a mid-season uh, driver comparison. I would love to do a post-season driver comparison as well, and we can fill out the rest of our cool little teams quality compare spreadsheet that we put together. Yeah, remember that whole process? That was cool. I yeah. like when we make plans on the air. To... <laughs> I know. Well, and what's funny too is I think we were like two-thirds of the way through it, and the way we did it was we looked at qualifying, and we just said, did the one person qualify better or worse? Yeah. And, and – uh I think I said, "Hey, wouldn't it be good if we actually we put the actual position in there?" Yeah, like that'd be great. We're like, nah, for next time. <laughs> but now that I'm looking at, it, I'm like, ah, it would have been nice to know what those positions were because there's out qualifying. Because like you can out qualify. Like you know, we've seen between well, Weber and uh, Vettel is an excellent result, uh, excellent comparison. You know, Vettel and Weber can be one two and you know a tenth apart. Or they can be one, two, and eight tenths apart. And sometimes, like the Williams would be out in Q one and Q three. There'd be like some big disparities. Right. Sometimes the Lotus Renaults, you know, or, or a Sauber could right. get unlucky or get lucky or whatever. Right. Yeah. So there are some big deltas in there. So and, it would uh, be lovely to know. Okay, what was this qualifying time versus that qualifying time? What we need was to get we need to get the rubber position. goat back on that because he's yeah. great for that stuff. I, yeah. Right. But anyway, that, yeah, that's we're definitely. <laughs> that's off the, I'm just refreshing the Wikipedia page again to see if any other drivers have been confirmed since the last <laughs> five minutes. Of, so far, they've not. Um, well, but let's really, really quick, just for my own, because, I mean, you know, the race wasn't terribly exciting. Uh, you know, Mark Webber did go on to finish. It's great for him. Vettel did hold on to the, uh, did hold on to second place. His transmission held together. He finished second. Jensen Button managed to get around Alonzo um, because he had a better set of tires on the car towards the end with, of the race. Yeah, eight laps to go or something. So, so he secured third place, yeah. which was cool. And then, um, you know, somebody else was in fourth. I'm not even looking at it. I think. Well, it was Alonzo in fourth. Just Alonzo behind, in fourth, behind right. Behind Button there. Then it was Massa in fifth. Um, did some sweet donuts at the end of, of his in-lap after the, after the checkered flag and all that. Kind of a thank you to his fans. Which was, um, as it was mentioned on Twitter, it was sort of funny in that, um, you know, he's doing all the celebrating because, of course, it's Brazil and it's his home fans and it's, and it's all that. But he's the, the only Ferrari driver to have a podiumless season since 1981. <laughs> Ouch. I mean, not once on the podium My this year. My God, this stupid phone, Jim. I need to get it. Amory bought me, my wife bought me the, a, I got a new phone, and my wife bought me a super fancy phone case for it, but it's a lot slicker, so it doesn't grip the pocket. That looks It's really fallen sweet. out of my pocket like three times now. Yeah, but it's kind of like carbon fiber-y on yeah, the Yeah, I like it. It looks sweet. Yeah, I'm well, fancy. Well, you better put a, but that's get a the better, second you need time, zipper pants. That's the second time it's fallen in this same building. Well, fair enough. Ridiculous. So it was Masa in fifth, which is, he was excited about just 
you know, I guess having, you know, not having been run off the road by Hamilton or anything like that. So he was doing donuts and it was the end of the year in Brazil and all that, but ultimately not a good season for Massa. Um, and then Sutil behind him in sixth, who uh, ultimately moved up two places from where he started in eighth. And, uh, I mean, we didn't see much of him in the race, but it did a did a solid job. I mean, just the, the stops were good, the strategy was fine, and uh, just solid performance to, to end, uh, very, end there very for Force India. Play. So that's, and that that speaks to, you know, maybe Sutil is the guy to keep on board yeah. for next year. It's kind of a three-way musical chair fight for two seats there between Hulkenberg, Sutil, and Duresta. You know, Paul Duresta's a rookie, and he's got Mercedes backing behind him and Mercedes support, so there's a really good chance that Duresta is going to keep that seat. So I really think it's between Sutil and Hulkenberg. And the problem is, is that both are probably quite good, and perhaps, you know, again, Sutil, it's his rookie season, so it's a little bit unfair. But Sutil, Wait, Sutil I mean, Duresta? I mean, Duresta's, yeah. Duresta is, you know, he had, a, he had a really strong first half of the season, but he kind of sputtered out a little bit, and Sutil really shined the second half of the season. And I, I think deserves the ride. Yeah, I don't know if, if if Sutil is one of these drivers though that does really well when his contract is up for renewal, but then otherwise kind of settles in like Heidfeld or one of these guys. Yeah. where it's like he certainly not as this. extreme as Heidfeld. Yeah, because Heidfeld was like you could yeah you can almost tell just by looking at an unclap on track clip of him going through a few corners you could tell oh he must have been up for a contract then <laughs> exactly. or no he was comfortable right but uh, yeah I mean that's it, it seems a little bit that way that you know Sutil has had some some runs of brilliance and had some you know couple weeks in a row where it's just really not come together for him and, you know, had some, some issues in qualifying or just some, some errors and whatnot. So it's a little hard to say, but yeah, it seems, uh, um, you know, it's not an easy decision, I guess is, is the simplest thing we could say. And it's probably again, going to come down to some of the commercial interests and the money and whose sponsorship comes where, cause they're sort of right. right on the cusp of being with the big teams of, uh, of the pay, uh, you know, payments, whatever, but obviously with sponsorships and then with uh, money troubles for VJ Malia and all that, it uh, probably matters even more. So um, we'll just see how that happens. And hopefully it will come in the next couple of weeks or I'll just keep refreshing Wikipedia and maybe it'll come in the next few minutes. <laughs> so one more thing I want to talk about before we officially leave the race coverage. Rubens Barrichello. No. Oh. Yeah, but good for him. I hope he does well. The... No, he had a terrible start. He lost like eight positions because I think he was waving to his fans and okay. missed the start. Okay, two anyway, more things worked, I want to talk about. Well, let's, let's, and... do, let's do Bear Kell first. Yeah, he had a terrible start, but he worked his way back up. He ended up finishing 14th, I think it was. 17th. Oh, was it that bad? Yeah, yeah 17th. Oh, no. Oh. That was in, sorry, 17th. That's Constructors. That's championship. championship. 14th. He finished 14th uh, down one lap. Um, really not bad for that car. Um, it, it was a pretty solid weekend for him. His wife and kids were hanging out with him. He had the Brazilian fans backing him. He had that great qualifying run. Um, but, yeah, just a miserable, miserable start. Uh, I don't know if he would have ended up much different um, than 14th at the end of the day. But um, Yeah, and, and but more sort of for the whole weekend with, with him is that he doesn't have a race drive for 2012. He's very confident that he will. Yes. And there's just this back and forth of, well, you know, we you know, more than anything, you just kind of want to know, like, hey, dude, if this is your last race ever and you've had this the longest ever career in F1 and all this, like, you know, we want to go out on high point. You know, the drivers, the other drivers and other, you know, people that have worked with him since forever, which is like everyone up and down the pit lane in some fashion or other, right? I mean, sure, sure. Different teams he's worked with, with, you know, Braun and Ferrari and everything. And, uh, and, and, you know, sort of like, dude, if this is your last race, man, like, we got to throw you a big party. Like, right. we got to make something special out of this. It's Brazil. It's the whole thing. It's your home race and all that. And, but if not... Then it's sort of, uh, sort of like going out with a whimper again. It's sort of unfortunate. And if it's if it turns out that just oh nothing happens, nothing comes together for him over the off season, and it's like, 
oh, well, that was it, and we no longer see Rubens anymore, then right. it's sort of a, too bad of a way for it to end. So, you know, Massa was sort of has, has been pretty vocal in saying, like, dude, if you have to bring money to the team, like, you're better than that. Like, you shouldn't, you, you know, you shouldn't be a driver anymore just because it's, you know, you shouldn't have to deal with all that, and it shouldn't be based on money. You know, you're a good enough driver that, you, you know, you should sort of a, you know... I, I don't know if it quite makes sense. Yeah, but it's I e- mean, easy for him to say. I it's guess. easy to say, but at the same time, you know, teams need money to survive, and you know, if that's if that's what it takes, if you know, I I think it was Schumacher said, "Well, it'd be a shame if it just came down to money." But it's like, yeah, but what if, what if they need the money? I mean, there's something very legitimate about that in my mind. So, uh, it, I I think it seems the rumor the rumors I've heard most recently is that. Things aren't working out with Raikkonen at Williams. So I think there's still a little bit of hope. We may very well see Rubens in the car next year. If we do, I really hope he makes the decision fairly early on to say, okay, this will be my last season. Because at this point in time, there are no multi-year contracts in his future that I can see. You know, I, I would say that's very unlikely. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was sort of the thing. If you remember when Schumacher announced that he was retiring, which is, you know, one of those drivers for whom it matters to announce. I mean, I don't think it mattered really if, if, if Jerome D'Ambrosio said, I'm going to retire at the end of this year. <laughs> it's like, okay, whatever. But, you know, if like Alonzo makes that decision or, or oh, whatever. Sure. You know, it's so like when I remember, um, you know, it's sort of just, it's something different. It's something special that at the end of the race, when they're doing their final laps, everyone's sort of like, oh, this is our final farewell, Schumacher or whatever. And it'd be the same kind of thing for Rubens. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that with all all of his you know, all of his second places in the championships and all the times he's runner up that, you know, to never have a world championship. Um, but to just, you know, such a, you know, genuine guy and good racer and, uh, and, you know, just really always comes across as just like a really nice guy and everything. And, um, you know, to have the kind of career that he's had and be able to stay as competitive as he has for as long as he has yeah. is, is unprecedented and, and may not happen again for a very long time with so many young drivers and everybody, all the changeover. So it would be kind of, you know, kind of nice if, if we, you know, if he comes to the U S and he, you know, we're in the U S grand prix and we, you know, he's doing his laps and we're like, dude, you know, sort of a farewell to Rubens and send off. It just sort of feels a little bit different than, Oh, Rubens isn't here this year. Right. Oh, no, well, he's gone. Totally agree. So one more thing I want to talk about. And that was, uh, Vettel comparing himself to Senna, uh, on the team radio. I feel like Senna 91. So first of all, uh, People, and this is more recent on my mind because, of course, of the Senna documentary, yes. which, which you and I have both seen. I think a lot of our fans will have seen. And uh, and, and that was a very dramatic part of, of the documentary, certainly, was the Brazilian Grand Prix because he was, you know, he'd had all these all this success. Uh, Iron Senna, this is. and But had never won at home. It was, like, not quite a jinx, but sort of like it just never came together. And, you know, as, as you know, I don't think there is quite another driver who had so much sort of national pride and there, there's so much sort of the, the nation was just so invested in one driver. Um, I mean, you know, obviously England gets excited when Lewis Hamilton or Jensen Button does well, but not to the extent, I mean, you know, Brazil and Senna were, that was like such a huge deal that he sure. was bringing all this positive attention to, to Brazil and the whole thing. So the fact that it was, you know, Ayrton Senna at his home race, it was raining, it was crazy. Um, and then he lost three gears out of six. And this wasn't shift early. This was they no longer exist those gears. Right. Um, yeah, because we actually with with Vettel's thing, you know, it could have just been an overheating or or whatever. You know, it wasn't necessarily that the gears were gone. And of course, when you lose gears in a transmission, um, it's not like they just suddenly vaporize and they're gone. I mean, in a lot of cases there are pieces of something that are moving around in the gearbox, and there are things that get jammed and things that you have to work on. So anyway, um, so Senna fighting with with the gearbox. Um, 
I would say was, uh, you know, closer to what we saw Alonzo do a couple of years ago. Was it Malaysia? Ah, uh, I know where, exactly where, you where, where, like, the, where the rear tires would lock up on him. Yeah, and all it was kinds like it was like stuff. really fighting with the car. Yeah, and and at the end of that, as, as we saw from the documentary, it was you know, Ayrton's his, his arms and like shoulders had pretty much seized up. Like he had been working him so hard, and it was like just you know beyond what sort of physically made sense for his body to do and just purely an emotional like i need to win Senna's this body race. was like this doesn't make sense i know and, <laughs> and yet his mind was like i need to win this race and the fans and the whole emotion of the whole thing um and and then he came back to to win the race to maintain the lead through the rain through yep. fighting with this car in like a very mechanical kind of way and then and the, at the end you know when they presented the 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 podium or it was even you know presenting with the brazilian flag not even the he trophy. Could barely lift over and his shoulders. And you can tell just just wincing from the pain in his shoulders, but he does it and he lifts the flag over his head. And it's like a very dramatic moment. And for anyone to to sort of compare themselves to that is a pretty lofty comparison. Definitely. And and that's key, right? He compared himself and the reason was This is Vettel we're talking about. That now we're at Vettel because on a sunny day <laughs> after he had clinched everything and uh you know, everything has gone his way all season, pretty much. He had to short shift a little bit. And he finished second. I mean, it's just... And he, I, he looked okay on the podium. He looked pretty much okay to me. So I I just... I mean, it, the poor guy. He's just a kid, really. I mean, he's, you know, 24. And it, it, so it, it sucks to blame a guy for, you know, just kind of saying... But because he said it during the race, because he said it in the public, and because it's so grossly disproportionate to what actually happened in 91 with Senna... I. It's just like, dude, really? Really? Yeah, and I, I think I mentioned that on Twitter. It's like, you're doing fine, Vettel, but you're not Senna in right. 91. Yeah, like, it's exactly. just not to the same level. And as, as I've pointed out... And I out, think your, your, uh, your example with Alonzo a couple years back is, is, is a very good point. I mean, that's, yeah, fighting with the car. And then it ended up the engine exploded anyway, so it was right. all for oh, not. That's I mean, right. I mean, oh, that, that sucks. That oh. is a, like, bad situation yeah. where you're just, you're fighting through the car, and it was like the clutch didn't work, so he had to, like, force it between gears, and, oh, like, yeah. it was awkward and, and that whole thing. He had to do that weird shift as he was breaking and yeah. half the car the, had to kind of the, the rear thing, end was it, it oh man to yeah. spin like that that's fighting with the car and then to have all that happen and then the engine blows up like ah yeah. oh, yeah. you know that's one of those you just feel for the guy and and you know but it's like Vettel dude come on and so okay in in absolute terms right Vettel is driving a formula 1 car and he's missing some gears at Interlagos so in absolute terms he was a lot more like Senna in 1991 than say you or I were sitting on the couch watching the race yeah in 91 I'm pretty sure I was still riding my Bicycle. I mean, I would have been eight, uh, yeah. so you know, fair <laughs> enough. But um, but yeah, so it's like okay, yes, we understand you're at Interlagos and you're missing some gears and you're still driving, but it, not in the same situation, yeah. not to the same level. So yeah. uh, you know, you are a double world champion, but come on. Yeah. So speaking about the world championship, I thought I'd just run down the list a little bit because you know it's always fun to talk about numbers. The winner of the Drivers' World Championship in 2011 was, believe it or not, Sebastian Vettel with 392 points. This race is what actually confirmed it. He actually put a little uh, seal on it. Jensen Button was second in the Drivers' Championship this time around, which was really cool. I think, uh, to me, uh, actually showed a really, really good season for Jensen Button. Uh, He had 270 points. Third was Mark Webber, like we talked about, with 258. And fourth, Fernando Alonso for the Ferrari with 257. So had, again, had Alonso maintained third place and not lost to Jensen Button, he would have gotten two more points, 12 instead of 10, I think it is what it is, um, third or fourth, and he would have had 259 points, and he would have been third. So 
again, to me, that's more evidence against the whole, you know, Red Bull gate of, of you know, whoever being let by by Vettel for some strange reason to make that all up. Yeah, or, and if they even had had a tie, then Alonso would have won having, um, have, you know, having won a race. Um, well, I guess, well, uh, well, Weber also has won a race now too, so I guess it would have been gone down to other results and stuff. But anyway, yeah, the, yeah. it worked out well. That, uh, that Weber was able to win this race. Lewis Hamilton was fifth, although he had no chance for fighting for second or even third, I don't think, um, with 227 points, scoring no points today. And Felipe Massa was sixth, scoring 118 points. So, yeah, so if you look at the points, I mean, it's Sebastian Vettel with this on nearly 400 points, you know, just way out in front, and obviously he clinched it races and races ago. And then there's a the second place, this bunching of, of Jensen, Mark, Fernando, and Lewis. And then, of course, with Lewis's, uh, you know, DNF and all that, that certainly doesn't help him in this, this most recent round. But then it really falls off a cliff to Felipe Massa. Huge I mean, if, if you look at just Alonso to Massa, it's 257 points to 118 points. It's less than half the number of points of his teammate. I mean, that is just doesn't seem like it would be acceptable to Ferrari. And I, don't, I mean, I guess maybe for marketing reasons, Felipe Massa is great to have around or something, but performance-wise, dude, come on. Yeah, that's very, very tough. And then uh, Nico Rosberg and Michael Schumacher follow up. Nico with 89 points compared to Schumacher, 76. And a ninth is Adrian Sutil, and this is one I wanted to point out. Uh, Adrian Sutil ended up finishing ninth in the championship, and dunk, 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 13th is where Paul DeResta sits with 27 points. 15-point spread, pretty big difference 42 to 27. Especially those mid-pack teams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 10th place was Vitaly Petrov, just ahead of his Renault teammate. No, no, not Bruno Senna, Nick Heidfeld. (laughs) So Vitaly Vitaly had 37 points. Nick Heidfeld hadn't been in the car since, uh, I guess it's Hungary. Yeah. Yet was only three points behind uh, Vitaly Petrov at the end of the season. I don't know. I mean, I have to say... Certainly when he was driving, he was not impressive to look at, but he could bring a car home in one piece. Pretty mm-hmm. darn consistently, Heidfeld could. Well, and so the whole rest of the season was, was Bruno Senna, and where did he end up? Oh, 18th with two points. Right. So, I, I mean, it's that's, uh, you know, I, 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 think, I think Heidfeld does feel, I mean, I think Heidfeld's a little bit justified in feeling uh, like he was hosed in that situation. Um, Kobayashi was 12th. 30 points already mentioned. Duresta, 13th with 27. I mean, the STRs um, with Al-Gashwari, um quite a bit ahead of, of his teammate Buemi. Uh, Al-Gashwari with 26 points, and then Sebastian Bemi with 15. And those are the kind of guys, you know, the STRs, Force India, Sauber is kind of where we are in the lineup right now, where, uh, you know, sometimes they'll have these top 10 results and get a bunch of points at once, but a lot of times they end up, they fight for the, you know, one point, two points, three points, you know, for the last couple points paying positions. So, yeah, absolutely. you know, a gap of nine points could represent, you know, many races of with better success um, or or even just one really solid, you know, a sixth place somewhere, seventh place somewhere to, to get some good points. But uh, yeah, Al-Ghashwari quite, quite well uh, out, outperforming Sebastian Buemi for the season. And then behind him, Checo Perez in the uh, in the Sauber thief. <coughs> Excuse me, with a... uh, just one point behind Buemi. Caught so, my uh, throat. The stealing. Fourteen points there, um, and then man, Rubens Barrichello only ended up with four points for the entire season yep. uh, for Williams. Bruno Still beat Senna, his teammate though. Yeah, Bruno Senna, like we mentioned, behind him with two points, and then Pastor with one point uh, for the year. Uh, then we are down into the the non-point score. So Pedro de la Rosa, who of course was only in uh, for the Sauber for Canada. Um, and who will be an HRT driver next year, but was only in for one race, is actually classified highest of all these guys. Uh, then Yarno Trulli in the Lotus, Heike Kovalainen, Tony Oliuzzi, Jerome D'Ambrosio. And again, that's really interesting because it seemed like uh, Kovalainen outperformed Trulli in many, many cases. 
Is it just a matter that they, if if you both have zero points, they go with what whosoever car number is higher? I mean, I, I, it doesn't seem like there's any real. Yeah, it's gotten Narain Karthikeyan higher than Ricardo and Karen Chandak. I don't know. It's, it's, it's exactly my point. I don't know if the, this order for the no point scores means, means anything, anything. Yeah, for these guys. If it's, um, but anyways, not alphabetical. But anyway, that's what it is. That's the race. So that's were, the year. There were twenty-eight drivers that competed in races this year. There were seven drivers that ever made it on the podium throughout the course of the whole year. And five drivers after Malaysia. Yeah, so of course the first time Vitaly Petrov was on the podium, first round, and then Heidfeld in the second round, and we were like, oh, these Renaults, this may become, you know, something amazing might happen. And then, no, they were not on the podium since. So then it was just the top five guys on the podium for the entire rest of the season, which was 17 races. So in terms of, yeah, consistency and numbers and so on, I mean, it's, it's not to say that there wasn't anything interesting in terms of on-track battling and passing and strategy and so on, but at the top, at the sharp end of the field, man, I mean, you can just looking at the points, I mean, the first five drivers um, down to the whole rest of the field and everything, it's, you know, they have double, and it's Massa, who's that, you know, should be in the top six. I mean, he's in as good a car as Alonso, but just not able to get anywhere near the results out of it. Right, never got a podium Massa did, which, you know, you'd think, you know, it's kind of amazing that Nico never snuck onto the podium. You know, definitely a couple of guys that you'd think, man, one or two would get on there once or twice. And then, you know, for the Renaults, it looked so strong at the beginning of the season and then just fall off so quickly. Yeah, and I mean, also not as much attrition as we used to see. I mean, not, you know, very few sort of spectacular engine failures. And, yeah, we had a couple, you know, we had Vettel's tire and, and Hamilton's gearbox and things like that. And usually those kind of situations are where the podium gets gets upset and gets screwball, but it's just never really happened that well. I mean, it was really just these the top five guys the whole way. And uh, we'll have to see, I mean, every time if the balance of power changes uh, in the next, you know, in the off season, and we start next year and maybe McLaren's a bit stronger, maybe Ferrari's radical new design is going to be amazing. <laughs> or, you know, if this whole Mercedes Schumacher pairing finally comes good with everything being, you know, who knows what there's plenty to talk about in the off season, but uh yeah, I think that'll pretty much wrap up the race coverage for for 2011. And uh, I, I do know we've got plenty of listener feedback to get into, so uh, why don't we move on to that? Definitely. Good, sir, we have an email. Oh, nice. It's from Carol Williams, and she writes, Just wondering if Lewis and Jensen are the best driver pairing since Prost and Senna? Question mark. Now Lewis is back in a happy place. His blinding speed is back, and by qualifying so far in front of Massa, those instances will become a minor footnote in a great F1 season. Apparently not. Looking at all of the other teams, no one has such a balanced pairing where both drivers are capable of delivering the maximum result that the car is capable of. Jensen's drive in Abu Dhabi when his car was significantly handicapped by the faulty curve system, keeping what is meant to be the best car, certainly in Vettel's hands, behind until Weber swapped strategy and had to give and had to get past but never had the laps available to close the pit stop gap showed that his racing unlike his qualifying is as good as it gets this is Jensen Button we're talking about give give these a competitive car at the start of next season and watch them deliver great show but sorry that Austin looks like a dead duck Mark Williams that's interesting the emails from Carol Williams but the it says Mark Williams. We'll say it's from Mark Williams. It's probably from Mark if he's on. He's just using his wife's email. Yes. Um, yeah. So speaking of the uh, Massa or Massa Hamilton whole situation, uh, you know, I, I just saw our uh, Speed TV pit reporter Will Buxton tweeted. Uh, he just saw uh, Lewis Hamilton come up and just give Massa a big hug at the end of all this. Says like, 
you know what, like, let's not worry <laughs> about this. Like, we're buddies. And, and, and as he said in an interview, he's got tremendous respect for Felipe and all that. It's just sort of unfortunate the way these things have come together. And, of course, people get frustrated and blah, blah, blah. But hopefully it's sort of not there's, – there's not animosity between the two of them. And it would be sort of, un, yeah. you know, immature and unfortunate if it did go down that way. So, yeah, it sounds like, you know, at least Lewis is sort of like, all right, dude, you know what, like, we're cool. Let's not worry right. about it. And uh, and I think it's certainly too true that both of them have had a frustrating season. I certainly – Massa must be a stressed out, frustrated driver in general as well. And that certainly doesn't add to the tension, probably makes him drive worse than he would otherwise. And, you know, doesn't add to, you know, doesn't add to anything and makes it easier to blame people and be stressed out and not like them and so on and so forth. Yeah, so I mean, probably hopefully both of them can come back fresh and, and be stronger. Yeah, Massa probably hears what we say about him on the show and goes, man, that's, you know, I, my performance just really is not very good because I'm pretty <laughs> sure he listens. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like we hate to be hard on you, dude, but come on, we gotta, we got to see some more results there. So the big thing that she was talking about, you know, the pairing between uh, Prost and Senna versus Jensen and Hamilton. I'm pretty sure Mark is a dude, but okay. Sorry, Mark, Carol, I'm still stuck on the Carol part, um, is that, you know, Jensen and Han- Lewis get along. And I think it was pretty. I don't, you know. Obviously, you and I were quite young when that was uh, when that was going on. But I think Senna and Prost pretty quickly didn't get along, and pretty quickly became competitive. Seemed, yeah. Once Prost really saw Senna as a threat, it became an issue. I mean, at first, it's like, oh, that's great, you know, this youngster, and that'll be great. But then once it's like, wait a minute, you know, right. he's challenging me and pushing me a little bit, and. Uh, and, and I think there were bigger disparities between the cars then. I mean, it's, I guess it's hard to say with the way the Red Bull was this year, but you know, the the way um, in 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 those years, the way different car developments would go and different tires and and you know, just the way you know, like Williams suspension and the whole craziness that happened for a couple of years before they banned it and all these different things. Like, it seems like um, almost having a better car you could sort of mask if you weren't an amazing driver. If your car was just fast enough and you had good performance, then it wasn't until someone else came and sort of outdid you in the same car that you could really say, oh, well, shoot, he's actually faster than me. It's not just that he's, his car is better or his tires were better or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know as far as getting along. I mean, it wasn't – it was a different sort of world then. I mean, we didn't see – you know, there's a couple of uh, old, like, Domino's Pizza commercials with, like, Nigel Mansell and some of these different things. Like, um, <laughs> But uh, – there's there's a couple of uh you know things like that but yeah i mean with this year um especially with with lewis and jensen um you know all these different sort of appearances they've had at various events and things and you know these these like vodafone videos that they've come out with and various little commercials and and you know sort of behind the scenes things it really it seems like they genuinely get along and are um are, are both you know class guys and they've both you know, have have won championships and and recently, but are still you know active and hungry and in the hunt. So it's not like an Alonso Massa situation where Massa's never quite gotten there, and and Alonso's already been there, but with another team. Like it's just kind of a whole different dynamic, right? Um, and yeah, and, and neither one is sort of um, proving each proving himself above the other as a way of um, of sort of like oh I've got all this to prove and this old guy over here or whatever. I mean they're sort of in similar points in the career and so on. I mean obviously well, Jensen's I got mean, more it, experience. It's actually but... yeah Jensen's certainly later in his career than Hamilton is in theory at least. But uh, yeah, but with, I... his, but with his resurgence with Braun, I mean we saw this. It's like the rebirth of of Jensen Button, uh, you know, with uh, with that season. So it's it's still um, you know it's sort of sort of reset him back to uh, the sort of the, young, the youth and energy. And obviously Button's driving, you know, he, he did better than Hamilton in the championship. And yeah, absolutely. Quite so. So I mean, we really can't fault the, the driving there. And But um, certainly solid. Certainly the pairing, uh, I understand from a performance standpoint, you know, and there is kind of that similarity where, 
you know, Prost is kind of like the race strategy, calculated, makes the right decisions. That's how he was able to be so consistent. You know, he was called the professor. You know, I think he was called the professor. Wasn't he called the professor? I think he was nicknamed the professor. And, um, you know, Senna was much more of that natural talent, you know, could make a good, you know, could make a so-so car look great and all this kind of stuff. If you never go for that gap, then you're not a racing driver. Exactly, that uh, famous interview with with, uh, Jackie Stewart. So, um, uh, yeah, I see see parallels between, you know, Prost and Button and Senna and Hamilton, but it's funny to me because the pairing of Prost and Senna versus the pairing of... Button and Hamilton seem kind of different to me. Yeah, but there's certainly some similarities. It's pretty different dynamic, and but I agree. I mean, I think, I mean, Red Bull can't complain with the results. If anything, with owning the constructors' championship like they did and the drivers' championship in in Vettel's hands, I mean, it's not an an even battle between, uh, you know, between Mark Webber and and Sebastian Vettel. But that meant that the drivers' championship wasn't a down to the wire. Is it going to be this guy or that guy? But that it was wrapped up early. I mean, is that really so bad in terms of actual results? And you know, like I don't think Red Bull can look at this and really be unhappy right, with right. what happened. So is it really a dream pairing? Right. I mean, at I, McLaren, if it, if if having two equal drivers in some ways cannibalizes points. Yeah, when they've got a clear number one, and then and you know Weber, of course, has not won a championship, and he's won I guess nine races now, um, and only one this year compared to Vettel. It's. Uh, you know, I, I would say I, Weber. I think has won seven races now. Fed, you know, Red Bulls, you know, really got some secret sauce right now that uh, that's still working <laughs> very well. Sure, sure, and, sure. Uh, and you know, but I mean, the McLaren guys do seem to to have a good time and uh, and and get along well. And you know, you don't see some unhappiness there like you might see from uh, from Mark Weber. Um, I did want to also mention uh, there's a comment on F1Show.com from Laurie Jordan, um, who also uh, called us out. I guess we didn't really mention um, the you know why Jensen was was off in Abu Dhabi because of the Kurs coming and going. Um, partly because um, you know you don't get as much performance without Kurs. Either you don't get the power boost, you also don't get the braking help of the regeneration. Um, but I think even even worse than that is the fact that it was kind of coming and going. So yeah. you'd approach a corner and get ready to hit the brake pedal and not know what you're going to get, which is arguably the worst thing. I mean, you can sort of work your way, try to fight your way around a known failing car, but if it's you don't know what you're going to get one lap to the next, that's really, really hard to, to, to you know, maintain with that and, right. and do well at all. So I don't think we gave him credit for, um, for doing what he did with that, that, you know, the car in that condition. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think, because, uh, you know, the way I understand, I mean, the way I understand hybrids working with them in production cars um, in my day job, I, I don't think the Kurs is makes a car, uh, makes an F1 car more capable capable under the brakes. But I think because they have Kurs doing some work under braking, if the Kurs goes away, what it does is affects the brake balance. Yeah, the bias so, and balance. So yeah. all of a sudden, you have a brake balance you like that goes away when the Kurs isn't working the way it's supposed to. So that certainly would be unsettling. That certainly would affect your lap time. So yeah, that's a definitely a fair point. And um, we also, as always, had several, several, several comments on Facebook. Very active. It was great, as always, to read through your comments and stuff. Um, I, there's nothing super duper in particular that I want to point out, um, but you know, the Facebook page is, as ever, a very active and a cool place to hang out. Much better than actually doing your work during work time. So uh, I highly recommend that. Not that you would know anything about that. No. But that, uh, that, you know, is, is an exciting place to be. Um, also, the Twitter stream. I mean, we, you know, we don't always uh, go on and live tweet, but when we have races that are on a reasonable time zone for us, as, of course, Brazil and Canada are among uh, 
couple of others, sometimes the late night ones, um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's always fun to sort of to follow along with the racing. And we follow lots of drivers and teams and other fans. And, um, you know, if you follow us there, we are at the F1 show on Twitter. And uh, it's always fun to be involved in the conversation as we sort of call the uh, various events of the race like we see them and, and give our quick little analysis uh, on that. And also people throw us uh, ideas that we end up talking about in the show. So uh, that's been a lot of fun as well. And on Facebook, if you just uh, go to facebook.com slash F1 show, that's where you can find us there and you can like us and, and you know, add comments and photos and all those kind of things. Um, but most of all, visit F1show.com. There's links to everything else, but you can comment right on the shows there and uh, go look, you know, listen back to old shows. It's always a fun thing to do in the offseason is hear what we said about Brazil last year, about, you know, Vettel's crazy championship results then, or, you know, go listen back to, uh, you know, USGP 07, which was uh, Sebastian Vettel's debut, and hear what we said about him back then. So it's always a fun activity. <laughs> all of it's free. All of it's available there online. And uh, it's all fun stuff to, uh, to listen to and, and talk about there. But that means it's time for trivia right now. Trivia. 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 (laughs) Of course, that beautiful, beautiful little ballad means that it's time for trivia. And we have brought it back and we have an answer to the question we asked last week. It was posed by Stuart Mitchell. And he asked the question, who is the least successful F1 driver of all time? And that is when you're considering who competed in the most Grand Prix without ever winning one? And the answer is not Nick Heidfeld. Hmm. The answer is Andrea de Cesaris, probably pronounced incorrectly. He raced in 208 Grands Prix from 1980 to 1994 and never won. That is a long career. He won. He, he was on the podium five times. Never heard of the guy. Yeah, well. Shows you what I know, but 14 years without winning. Anything. Yikes. Yeah. All right. We have a new question uh, actually posed to us as a uh, uh, comment on the F1 Show page from episode 102, brought to us by Fred. Um, And his question is... Hi, Fred. Yes. Hi, Fred. (laughs) (laughs) You threw me off my... my, my I had some mojo going. Uh, I killed it. When was the last time the team that won the Constructors' Championship didn't win the Drivers' and who won it? Ooh. Ooh. Simple enough. A historic question. It's a two-parter. And, uh, yeah, obviously we had Red Bull tie up everything this year, and uh, it's been, been that way for a couple of years. But uh, if you think back, uh, you know, a different team winning the Constructors' Championship from the drivers, and, uh, and when was that? And who won it? So it's a two-parter. So, uh, as always, it's fun if you wanted to just either keep and track of And who didn't win it? Three parts. That doesn't make sense. No, it does. Okay. If you think about it no, deeply. Don't want to. Um, you can, uh, if, if you know the answer, you can, you can keep it to yourself to see if other people know it, or if you'd like to, uh, you know, shoot us an email to feedback at f1show.com or post a comment in any of the other various forums that we, uh, have available, then, uh, that's always fun, but we must move on to predictions. So the F1 season in 2011 was very, very consistent, which meant that our simple statistical model did very well in terms of guessing whoever won the last race is going to guess is going to win the next one. Whoever was on pole position, usually Sebastian Vettel, was going to be on pole position again for the next race, usually Sebastian Vettel. So it did a very good job. But every once in a while, whoever won the last race would have a bad result at the next one, um, which is actually what happened in Abu Dhabi, of course, with Vettel winning in India but then having a DNF in Abu Dhabi, and then Hamilton winning in Abu Dhabi and having a DNF here in Brazil. So every once in a while, that simple t- statistical model with its no brain and its just simple Excel calculations um, fails, and us intelligent humans 
do a whole lot better. Sadly, however, the first time uh, when it happened in Abu Dhabi, uh, where where Vettel was uh, predicted to win by the statistical model and was out um, very first lap, is that we, being the intelligent human beings that we are, followed the statistical model uh, the exact same way, and we suffered the exact same fate. Don't. Not this time, however, sir. You, uh, you uh, picked Sebastian Vettel to be on pole, but silly as you were, picked Jensen Button to win the race, which I don't understand. The statistical model uh, said Vettel is going to be on pole and Lewis Hamilton's going to win the race. Hamilton sadly had the transmission issue. The statistical model scored 21 points today. Yikes. I, however, was bold, intelligent, thought about it long and hard, and I said, no, no. Sebastian Vettel is going to be on pole, and he's going to win the race. And were it not for a little niggly transmission issue, he would have done so. Alas, Mark Webber did it, and Sebastian Vettel finished second. If no matter tra- if by transmission issue you mean big conspiracy. Big conspiracy. <laughs> no matter, I scored but one point this event to your two. I scored half as many points as you, and uh, won the event. Yay for me. Yes, but However. <laughs> as it is the end of the season, we can look back at our overall points. And uh, as we record this, since it is just after the race, our prediction stud, Neil Popham, has not yet updated the leaderboard for everyone. So we'll have to check up on that later on. But we've got for you and me and the prediction model we do. how that all went. Yeah, so uh, what I think I think is most interesting is considering that we've had 19 races and various opinions on things we've agreed at times, we've disagreed at times, we ended up only six points apart from each other. You, sir, take the win. 88 points to my 94. I owe you six Cokes. Six Cokes. And uh, you individually won the event eight times to my six. And we agreed with each other and tied five times. So at the, for the end of the season, to only be six Cokes apart is something special. Because I just did some quick math. And if we, if, if we had gotten it right, if one of us had been perfect and the other had gotten it so wrong every time, how many points do you think I would, we would be different? Oh, man, that would be, what, 23, Eight. 46 points times 19. Which is 874. That is, <laughs> that's a lot of Cokes. Yes, yes. And uh, so, yeah, the fact that, well, I mean, partly the, there were a record low number of people on the podium and that there was very consistent. And, of course, Sebastian Vettel playing a huge part in that. Sure, okay, it's not, it's not that it was going to be, you know, it could be any one of 24 drivers every time, but still, kind of interesting that, yeah, at the end of all that, that uh, it came down to be pretty close, so I, I feel pretty good about that, and of course, because I ended up um, with a couple, the, the lucky Hamilton error for you, and <laughs> the time that I really screwed up, you also screwed up, whatever, I mean, I guess it's, I, I can't say that I'm any better at anything. Um, but the, but you can, feel free to gloat, because I would definitely gloat if I, I were it's, yours. I mean, <laughs> whatever. Um, it's, it was a lot of fun though. Um, we're going to do it again next year. And, um, certainly for anyone who, who is newer to the show and didn't start predicting at the beginning of the season, we don't really have a good way to prorate it for the rest of it. So, um, if you, if you want to, you know, if you missed out this year, certainly get ready in the off season and we'll, we'll be talking about it, um, before the season starts, but, uh, to predict for the full season next year. And then you can be among the leaderboard and see if your brilliance shines through over and above Robin or me or the predictions model and all the other fans on Facebook. And I will say this is a good time point. There's been a couple of issues of what the predictions should and shouldn't be. Uh, two things we want to keep keep clear. Uh, it, it, it's all for fun. It's all meant to be kept very, very simple. It's not anything elaborate here. And um, we feel that we would much rather have people predict poorly than not predict at all. So there was talk about having a default of getting you know 10th place or something like that, like default of uh, some kind of thing where you ended up in the mid-pack if you didn't predict at all. No. 
we're, we're not doing anything like that. We're keeping it super simple. If you don't predict anybody, that's maximum points. Shame on you for not predicting. Of course, it's the most important thing in the world. Drop everything else to predict on time. Absolutely, right? Yeah, and, and the most thing is it's just, it's just like you say, it's a lot of fun. There's not uh, you know money riding on this or anything super crazy. There are cokes riding on this. There are cokes between you and I, and I guess we should square up and, uh, <laughs> and, and get our cokes to each other um, or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a lot of fun, and, and it's partly it's just interesting to see. Um, and this season, of course, we, we weren't, but are we any better at predicting anything than a really simple model? And, and this season we turned out to be very, very close because – uh, well, there's actually a slight discrepancy between my math and uh, Neil Popham's, and I don't know who screwed up where. He, but he's using that new math, I think. He may be, but uh, I have the predictions model at 76 points at the season's end compared to your 88 and my 94. So we were beat by a very simple, very stupid model, but not by much. So yeah. we're not much less stupid than a very stupid, very simple model. That's something to be happy about. And on that note... Um, well, there's a couple of things to say. I, I want to point out that um, we love doing trivia. We're all for trivia. We tend not to do it in the off season, um, but if you guys have super duper trivia questions you want to send our way, please do so. Please do so with an email. That's the best way for us. And please include the answer. It makes our research team a little breathe a little easier. You know, that's yeah. that's I, I think important for the research team. And it's always good to have a couple of those saved up so that uh, yeah, when we're putting together the shows, we can uh, we can always have fun trivia questions and answers, and uh, you know just keep track of all that stuff. Um, and, also, yep. Sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> there, uh, there's a, there's a holiday afoot, setting our way. It is after Thanksgiving, which means officially Christmas is coming that way. Which means you have to buy gifts. And Jim and I are here for you. We actually have a solution for that too. We provide so many. Helpful things to all our uh, all our listeners, including WarnerMotorsports.com. So you should go there to check out stylish automotive and racing enthusiast apparel and accessories, including the race-proven, durable, sexy, hot-to-trot, and world-famous F1 Show t-shirt. Jim's got one. Don't you want to be like Jim? F1 Show stickers, too. All at WarnerMotorsports.com. The only place to get official F1 Show merchandise and a bunch of other cool stuff there as well. Excellent. True. Very true. Excellent point. Those are both factual statements. <laughs> oh, man. Well, and, and, they sir. Sh- and they ship worldwide, so wherever you are. They do ship worldwide, yeah. Sometimes uh, it's, it's a little easier to get to one place than another, but yeah. We have, we have sold shirts in New Zealand, Australia, Japan, England, I believe South Africa even. And even one to Ohio, I think. No, San oh. Diego. <laughs> Fair enough. But anyway, sir, well, uh, shake your hand. Successful yeah, F1 show season. F1 2011 is in the bag. And, uh, but like we said, don't, uh, don't unsubscribe us from your podcast because uh, we tend to come back and do some interesting things in the off season. So keep an eye on the Facebook page. Keep an eye on F1show.com. And uh, until then, basically everyone, hey, take care and uh, have a great off season. I'm Jim Lau. And I'm Robin Warner. Bye. <laughs> Out like lamb, huh? <laughs>